0: Welcome to the Zealous Podcast with Rocky Snyder. In this episode, I sit down with Sue Falzoni. Sue is not only an amazing strength conditioning consultant, coach, a physical therapist. Uh, I, her qualifications run the, the length of the road. And one of those would be the actual the first female coach in Major League Baseball. And that's with was it the Los Angeles Dodgers? Is that where you started, Sue? Yep,
1: I yeah. Um uh for my first team affiliation, yeah, was with uh, was with the LA Dodgers as the um, first female head athletic trainer.
0: Head athletic trainer. Well, well, welcome, first of all.
1: Thank you. Thanks for
0: yes. having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, truly. I have seen you speak at many presentations, specifically the Perform Better Training Summits in Long Beach from year after year. You've been given some great presentations there. And I do have to say I've got a kind of a a soft spot spot in my heart because you don't know this but my daughter is the only female football player for santa cruz high school and they won the central coast sectionals the ccs last season and she's a defensive back as well as their primary kicker for extra points and so on so you're so she's as much of a trend center or at least following in your footsteps in some degree so and she wants to be an athletic trainer yeah, she's she's hoping to be an athletic trainer herself. So she'll be tickled pink that we're chatting right now, and I'm sure she'll be listening to the podcast and so on. So what that's have you been amazing. doing? Good for her. Yeah, oh, she's awesome. Yep, she's that's she's killing it. Cool. And of course, right now the high school sports, being what they are, they may have a football season come December, but we're not sure what that's going to be. So and uh, it's been nice to stand down on the sidelines, especially last season with her. And being their, quote unquote, kind of uh, strength and conditioning guy and, and helping the team out. But uh, that was only so I could be down on the field with her. And it was, yeah, it was a treat. So with shelter in place, obviously we're doing all these Zoom things and you're doing the same thing in Arizona. But what, to what capacity are you working these days? What, what is it that you're doing?
1: yeah things definitely are different I mean I normally travel 200,000 miles a year um, lecturing all over the world and teaching and consulting and you know sort of doing all that stuff and um, yeah now I'm here in Arizona and um, oh there's my dog that's Richard in the background Richard <laughs> Richard, Richard, the wiener dog <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, I've, I've had way more patients, um, like actual physical patients, uh, and I guess like internal patients, uh, but, but physical patients over the last few months, which has been nice. Um, you know, I do still have a concierge practice normally, so I'll travel with guys and, and see guys out on the road or, or at home or, you know, usually once or twice a week during the football season. Um, so yeah, so the last few months I've been treating a lot, which is, which is really nice um, to kind of get back to, get back to weekly treating. And, um, you know, I usually just treat guys in their home, uh, which is, which is good. So treating, and then, you know, like everybody moving as much as possible online, um, which is, you know, it's difficult. It's everybody's inundated right now with online education. And so trying to set our product apart and, and, you know, what we do and and how we do it and what we teach and how we bridge that gap between professions has been um, really important and something that we've really been working on. So.
0: Yeah. And so how does that affect like the online component of consulting? Are you doing that with professional athletes? I mean, major league baseball has just gotten underway with a shortened series. National hockey league is doing something really cool, uh, which is just basically setting up almost like a final four tournament. And and then the NFL, who knows where that's going with all the players going uh, off for the season, preferring not to play. But how has that worked for you and, and your business and the clients that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. You know, when all the leagues, when everything was canceled, everybody was, was home. So it was nice. Like now actually within the last few weeks, baseball went back. So a couple of baseball guys I was working with went back. I was working with an NBA coach. So he left a couple NFL guys, you know, they closed our gyms here in Arizona as well. So everybody went to where their team was because nobody had a place to work out. So yeah, now really just keeping in touch with guys remotely, um, you know, which is not, you know, I, I'm used to that. That's what I typically do. I'm always kind of like a quarterback for people and helping them manage their things from afar. Um, so not too much has changed for me from from that perspective. But from the education perspective, you know I own structure and function education, which, um, we do everything from bridging the gap from rehab to performance education to um, a, we do a lot of dry needling education, too. And a lot of the state laws prevent you from teaching dry needling online, which makes sense. It's an invasive procedure, but they also don't even let you do the lectures online in certain states. Really? So- Yeah, yeah, which is really crazy. Some states don't address it. So we are, we do have a new hybrid model that we are doing lectures online and then shortening our in person time together. Um, But other states, you know, you're just going to have to do the three day in person. And so I guess, luckily, not luckily, um, it sort of is gonna force people if they wanna learn that skill to kind of go back to in-person education um, when people feel safe. So, you know, working real hard with our team, consulting with different um, different physicians and looking at the CDC and how can we safely run a class, um, obviously limiting class space, social distancing, you know, using, uh, I, I teach at a, a medical university at A.T. Still University. And so, you know, when you're teaching people medical stuff, like social distancing just isn't a thing, right? Like there's certain invasive hands-on techniques that, you know, you, you have to get in proximity with each other. So what does that look like? How do we use per, personal protective equipment to protect ourselves, protect our patients, um, and then kind of take those same things to the, to the, um, education realm. Um, So yeah, a lot lot of moving parts these days, like everybody.
0: Yeah, it sounds it. Now with the bridging the gap from from rehab to performance, I mean, a lot has changed in that realm itself, but there's still, uh, in my not so humble opinion, some missing ingredients in that kind of bridging of the gap. There's still little gaps that need to be filled in, but I would pose that question to you. Like, what do you see as The missing ingredients, whether we're talking elite athletes and professional sports teams or just general population and just returning to like activities of daily life or or recreational sports, what do you see as the components that are coming into play now? Like You mentioned dry needling, which is, it's beautiful that we're taking alternative approaches that are not conventional Western uh, medicine approach and and infusing maybe an Eastern or homeopathic philosophy to it. But what, what do you see?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, for me, a few things like as a, you know, I'm physical therapist, athletic trainer and strength coach. So I definitely love living in all three of those areas. Um, but for me, you know, I was a physical therapist first. That was my primary, like my undergraduate education that goes to show my age. Um, And then I did athletic training. And during that time, I did the strength and conditioning stuff, but then ended up working at EXOS or Athletes Performance at the time. Um, And so I think for me, like as a clinician, one of the biggest things for me to be better at bridging the gap was hanging out with strength coaches. Um, Because, you know, I think, the PT mindset is sort of like three sets of 10, you know, can everybody do things slow and controlled? And what I really learned when I started working at Athletes Performance, even though I had done personal training in the past, um, was that, gosh, you know, nothing about returning to sport is three sets of 10, right? It's like six sets of one or 20 sets of one or, you know, whatever it is. So just really, um, I became a much better clinician as I hung out with the strength coaches more and really understood those concepts. Um, and I think I was better able to service my clients um, in order to help them to, to, bridge that, to bridge that gap, which I know you, you do quite a bit of.
0: Yeah, quite a bit. In fact, we've got our bridge class going on right now outside the confines of the studio. So, um, But it's interesting, you mentioned the strength coach, because obviously I started from the opposite end of the spectrum, became a strength coach through personal training and so on, and didn't go into the the realm of of structured physical therapy, but we do a lot of post-rehabilitative work, I guess you might say. But I do things along this parallel lines as what the typical physical therapist would do only. I don't do anything manually. It's all hands off. But what I find is that the strength coaches, they're more out in the field, so to speak, and they are learning as they go. So developing new approaches and concepts, whereas in nothing wrong with the physical therapist, no, no insult or injury toward them, but coming from an academic perspective and something that has been a repetitive cycle of learning with with some improvement over time, but in some ways staying with the same, almost, arc, not archaic, but the same kind of fundamental information, there is there is where the gap lies as far as I'm concerned Is is the two methodologies and the approaches. And it's encouraging to hear that, that you're kind of weaving them toward one another. But often what I find is that the communication between the physical therapist and the strength coach is where the gap lies, it, not so much the the actual exercises. So I, I and, and I got to say that kind of in some ways continues with the, the professional sports leagues and not to throw anybody under the bus, but would you kind of agree with that With and, and without naming teams or or even sports for that matter, just a general statement for first, professional sports teams like the programs that I see that are being developed there's quite a few of those three time ten kind of approaches even to this day would you find that to be true
1: yeah you know I think um having the the um I'll say luxury of working in season and off season in professional sports and I've seen the in you know I've, I've consulted with the um NBA and NFL, as well as my time in major league baseball. So um, as well as international soccer, I was with um, U.S. soccer for a total of two years, <laughs> although there were a year, there was a year, a couple of years in between there. But, you know, to see the inside of a lot of leagues is, is really cool. And I think kind of rare. And, and I think, yeah, there's a lot of differences and a lot of similarities across the board. And, and it, it is very organizationally um, dependent. Meaning some organizations do a great job at at having sports medicine and strength and conditioning really communicate. Um, And, and other organizations, not so much, you know, unfortunately there's still physical barriers, right? Like maybe the training room is on one side of the house and the weight room is on the other side of the house. And that's where, you know, when I was at athletes performance, like it was wonderful. We, we didn't even have a treatment room. We like, I just treated and evaluated right in the middle of the gym. So there was physically no barriers there. And so philosophically, there was no barrier there because we were all one. Um, and so I think when there is a physical barrier between those two departments, um, the philosophical barrier ha- has to be completely gone. There can't be anything there. And that, that's really difficult to do. So, you know, I think in 2020, I'd like to say that that we're getting better at it as a whole. We're, we're realizing there's just too much um, to, for one person to do. Um, And so I think communication is overall getting better within the leagues, within organizations and within individuals. Um, And and hopefully, you know, we always kind of had that philosophy of leave your letters at the door. Like this is an athlete centric model. What can we bring to the patient, to the client, to the human, right? Despite the letters after your name or or whatever. Um, And, and how do we create a plan for the human that is in front of us. And that was always really, really important to us at Athletes Performance.
0: Well, I definitely have to agree. I have didn't spend too much time down there at API, but I did have a, a good high school buddy of mine that I graduated with and he got a job down there, both of us being New Englanders growing up outside of Boston. So it was kind of unique for him to be out in Arizona. So I took a trip down there and met with him. And the cool thing that I really kind of glommed onto there was that, each program was individualized for every specific athlete that came through there. It wasn't a strict protocol. Although there were parameters, there was so much freedom within the confines of the parameter that every program was going to be specific to the athlete. And it was so encouraging to see whether it was in the rehabilitative process of not having specific protocols to follow on a A Xerox sheet of paper with exercises circled and other ones crossed out, but it was all dependent upon the the person and their ability to perform or where they were missing movements. And how could we encourage more of that? And in fact, one of the trainers that worked with me here did an internship down at API at the same time. So I got a little bit more of a tour in there and I was thoroughly impressed with Mark's setup and it was really cool to hear that you've been part of that because that seems to be a nice birthplace for this kind of methodology to spread forth across the, the planes of of conditioning and, and so on. So, and so where do you see yourself going? Like in the future, of course, you're, you're doing education and consulting and so on. And I think I'm actually older than you, but I'm not going to go there. I think I'm going to say I am because you're so youthful in everything that you've been doing. So uh, I also have like, I, I don't see the end game in sight, but I've got to kind of prepare for the journey going forth there. And so I just off the cuff, where, where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself going with strength conditioning or, or physical therapy or nowhere, anywhere near that field? Are you done? What's going on? I don't know. That's a great question, right? I think everybody
1: in the time of Corona is like thinking, where am I headed? What am I doing? What is my purpose in life?
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's a funny, I all I've been saying it for about a year or two because I do travel so much and, you know, uh, watch what you wish for because I've had plenty of time at home obviously over the last five months, but um you know, I always say, like, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm ready to retire, right? Like, I've worked, I worked two lifetimes already between, you know, the hours that you put in as being the head athletic trainer for a sport team, and I was a vice president at, at Athletes Performance at the same time. So, like, you know, working for both of those organizations, I just, I, I feel like I've worked a lifetime. So I always say, like, oh, I'm tired, I'm ready to retire. And then, like, a project comes up, or an athlete calls, and I'm like... Oh, you know, I I just, I've been treating for 25, you know, I, I graduated PT school when I was 22. So I'm oh. like, gosh, I've been, you know, I've been treating for 24 years of my life. Like I'm exhausted. But then I get in front of a, a athlete and I'm like, oh, this is a puzzle. This is really exciting. Right. And then, so yeah, I always say I'm tired and I'm ready to be done, but then I get super passionate about, about it still. So I know I'm not really ready to be done. I'm just a little tired right now as I think we all are. (laughs) And are you doing any
0: writing? I mean, you've, you've got the book bridging the gap between uh, rehab to performance. So if people want to find out uh, more about that book for the listening audience or viewers, where would they go to get that first of all?
1: Yeah, you can go to um, my website just either com. you can go to on target publications if you buy a lot of stuff from there, and then it's on Amazon as well. So
0: lots Beautiful. of places. Okay. And are you on any other writing projects right now? Whether it be blogs or books or are you just enjoying time with Richard? And Richard's probably getting sick of you being there. Actually, he
1: really—he's actually yeah. been physically sick over the last week. Yeah. I think he's just like go. Probably. And it's on you need one of
0: those sick. talking dog apps so you can just put some words in his mouth and and go viral with it. I can see him saying a few words. Yeah.
1: Oh no, yeah. No, yeah, no that is process? my ultimate ultimate life goal is to be like a social media you know, person with their dog, you know, that has just like 80,000 followers. And <laughs> I just spend my days like putting him in like different positions. <laughs>
0: oh, I'm sure he would um, love that. So so no writing projects currently? Well, no,
1: I have yeah, lots of writing projects. So I just finished a chapter for um, Barb Hugenboom and uh, Mike Boyd in their new edition for their um, rehab book. So that, um, I don't know when that's coming out, but that is done. Uh, And then yeah, Brian Hortz, who is my director of research and education, and I were working on a dry needling book, which I swore I would never write another book again. Um, That was one of the most traumatic and stressful experiences of my life, Uh, but here I am again. Uh, He's kind of helping to lead the charge on that because if he left it to me, it would not happen. Um, and then, yeah, just you know, I'm still I'm at the university too, so just working with a bunch of uh, doctoral students during their um, applied research projects. So really, more guiding them in their writing uh, versus being a primary author with that stuff. But yeah, couple got a couple of good research articles coming out too, which is which is good.
0: Very cool. Well, speaking on that, I'll just have one more question for you, and I know you've got to go. So when it comes to research, as I kind of understand it, it takes a while for the more popular items that we're doing in the field to gain the amount of awareness needed for a research student to to select something of that nature. It takes a few more years of research to occur and then get it published. So what we're seeing now coming out in research is typically Something that 's been in the in the works for for several years, but i 'm curious what are the things that you 're seeing in regards to research that 's coming out that may break away from that that may be more new information that isn 't necessarily being adopted out in the field. Is there anything that comes to mind with that
1: yeah it's you know it's really hard um, i don 't know where this concept of like evidence based practice kind of became. Uh, there needs to be a, you know, randomized controlled trial in order for it to mean anything. I think what we need to realize is that, you know, randomized controlled trials and these double blind research studies, and then there needs to be a lot of those studies in order to have a systematic review or a meta-analysis. So those things take years, right? Like you can't do a systematic review if there's only two studies on a topic. Like, that's not how it works. There needs to be hundreds of studies on the topic, and that gets weeded down into what creates the systematic review. So these things take a lot of time, and we have to remember that evidence-based practice is the best available research, uh, patient values, and clinician experience. And people tend to throw away that clinician experience and patient value piece, and I don't know why. Mm. And on top of it, I think that the best available evidence, that means like for me, there isn't, a randomized controlled trial on seven foot tall NBA players. So we have to look at things like a case study or a case series, like sometimes a case study is the best available evidence that there is and then we can look at maybe other systematic reviews extrapolated to other populations like you know high school basketball players or whatever it may be right like we can utilize the other evidence to help us form our opinion but i think we you know there's this large sector of phd people that i'm super digging right now because they're bringing back the value of the case study and the case series and case study and case series can be published way faster than a randomized controlled trial. So, um, you know, and, and then same thing with even some qualitative research, you know, I think that's kind of the new wave of research too, is that it's not just about quantitative research, it's about qualitative research. And so, um, and then some other, um, things like, um, like, uh, quality improvement studies, like, how do we improve uh, any type of a process within our gym, within our clinic, within our universities? And so there's a lot of new really cool things that hopefully will start broadening people's um, opinions about these systematic reviews and randomized controlled trials. You know, when, when you have a, a trial that is so, Um, you know, they, they weed out so many things, right? That's how you you do a randomized controlled trial. And and it becomes not related to the clinical world, because we know that a patient has a lot of different confounding factors. And in research, we eliminate as many confounding factors as possible. So it's not very realistic to apply those studies to our patient population. But to me, case studies and case series are really, really interesting, and I think are a fantastic way to learn.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I appreciate you mentioning that, too. Uh, So often we just look at research and just run with it and not really understand that we're just getting a small piece of the information here and and we got to take that just an ounce at a time. Well, and speaking of time, we are up against the clock. I do want to thank you on two levels. One is for just spending time with me. I really appreciate it too. It's It's been really fun. And if ever there's more time in your world or something you wanna come back and chat, I would love to just geek out against about biomechanics or bridging the gap and so on. And the other thing I wanna thank you for is warming up the crowd. Because on week three of the Perform Better summer seminar series you presented on Monday, and I actually presented the very next day on Tuesday. And I think I would have had a field of crickets had it not been for your talk to just kick off the week. And it was fantastic. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure. I love speaking for Perform Better. And just like, I've met so many cool people like yourself and and others that just speak on the circuit and everybody's just really tight. And I'm really definitely missing my Perform Better family this summer. It's yeah. uh, just you know, add it to the list of, uh, of disappointments and changes that we're all sort of dealing with. But it's really nice to be able to connect in this way. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to connecting more in the future. And uh, yeah, hopefully spending some physical time together uh, at, at a Perform Better conference next summer.
0: That would be nice. All right, from, from your lips to the reality of the world, that's what's gonna happen. Okay, Let's I'm gonna let it. you go. Thanks for being on the Rockford Files, Sue Falzoni. Again, you can go to Falzoni.com and Amazon for a whole bunch of her books and look for her on the speaking circuit. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I want to thank Sue Falzoni for coming on with me and sharing a little bit of her insight. I know I got a lot out of it. I hope you did too. And remember, if you're enjoying these podcasts, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any other platform, please subscribe and, and share with some friends. Yeah, the more the merrier. Well, it's nice to kind of meet face-to-face, and... I have come up to you in the past at one of the perform betters and we spoke, but you were inundated with a whole bunch of people. So if you say, Oh yeah, I remember, I know you're going to be full of it and you're just being kind. So don't (laughs) worry about it. It's very nice to meet you.
1: It's great to meet you.